2: Hello, welcome to the New Books Network. I am your host, Stephen Sakevich. In this episode, I will be interviewing Andrew Monahan, and we will be discussing the book, The Sea in Russian Strategy, that he co edited with Richard Connolly. It was published by Manchester University Press in 2023. Andrew Monaghan is an academic visitor at St. Anthony's College in Oxford and a senior research fellow in the Russia and Eurasia's program at the Royal Institute of International Affairs, Chatham House. He is also a senior associate fellow at the Royal United Service Institute, RUSI, in London, and a global fellow at the Wilson Center's Kennan
1: Institute.
2: Andrew uh, Monaghan, welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Thank you, Stephen. Pleasure to join you. Thank you for having me.
2: I think this is our second interview uh, together, is it not?
1: It is. Yes, you were kind enough to to host a discussion on uh, on a previous book I did on on Russian grand strategy and in, in the era of great power competition.
2: Yes, and uh, this is almost like a like a good uh, supplement to that book uh, as well, although it focuses more on the uh, the naval aspects.
1: Yes, I mean, it, it, I mean, informally you won't see it on on the covers as sort of volume, you know, the, volume two. But this is it, it's designed in many ways to be read independently, of course, on its own. But but it really works with the first one too. Yes, that 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 sense of of Russian grand strategy and how we get into interpreting Russian strategy. What are the priorities and the problems? What are the plans and the implementation? What are the strengths and the weaknesses and, and so on? Uh, also, I have to say, hope hopefully tracking something of a trajectory. So while the while the work doesn't really focus particularly on history, we get this sense of history leading us through the presence, build, build, building us into the present and, and maybe offering us a, a horizon into the future, too.
2: Yes, we definitely will have a very interesting discussion. Uh, as you may remember from last time, we always like to begin by asking our guests, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, and what's the backstory behind writing this book?
1: Well, my my position these days, I think, is uh, is is much the same as it was when we first met. I, I'm a I'm now a global fellow with the Wilson Center. I'm also an associate at the Royal United Services Institute in, in London. Most of my work tends to balance between. Uh, Let's call it academic style research, or, or research and 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 public policy discussion. So, so I kind of balance between the two between the two worlds of 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 academia and public policy, and and really my focus, as 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 we've spoken about, and as we'll speak about today, is on Russian grand strategy and 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 interpreting the trajectory of Russian Russian power, and that's really where the the, the book, the idea for the book came from. It emerged. Uh, it, it emerged from discussions we were having in, in the mid-2010s about about Russian strategy, about where was Russia going, about different aspects of, of Russian power. How do we interpret Russian power? Uh, and at the time, while there was a discussion of grand strategy, there was also a bit of a debate about whether there was a fourth battle of the Atlantic underway. And I thought this was really interesting. So we had we had a number of US senior US officers and Royal Navy officers, NATO officers also talking about this this fourth battle of the Atlantic. So we looked into it in terms of we we ran a conference uh, towards the end of last or towards the late 2010s on on Russian sea power. We managed to get together some of the really the leading the leading people in the field. And, and and was an excellent conference, so we thought we would take it into to to pre- preparing and, and organizing a book, which is which is what we've done. Um, we were struck when we organized it that almost nothing has been done on Russian sea power and maritime or maritime power since the end of the Cold War. So in many ways, the book is is framed, if you will, as a as a reintroduction to what this means. I mean, we've we've got. Uh, I, I think it's important because we've had a complete reversal in our understanding of Russian sea power in, in a decade. We've gone from from a position of very low uh, low standing, very easy to to ignore perhaps from a Western European and Atlantic point of view, to actually um, a, a fairly substantive role in the war that's underway at the moment between, between Russia and Ukraine and, and a fairly substantive concern also amongst amongst NATO about about Russian naval power. Um so so that's really where the book that where the book came from and uh, and the war has has I think has emphasized the, these questions uh, all the more. From my point of view, it opens up these big questions, so as I say, on how we interpret Russian power um, and hopefully we'll come to this a bit later. the traditions of seeing Russia as a land power or, you know how do we interpret that looking forward to the end of this decade. so that's that's where the book came from, a position of trying to find interpretations of of power and power and strategy.
2: Yeah, I was really deeply impressed by the uh the different contributors you were able to get for this book. Many of the names I, I recognize in the in the field. Now uh yes. run... Oh, sorry, go sorry.
1: No, I was just going to say we had, to, we, we were lucky with with the conference, um, we, we were able to bring together really uh, some some very senior policymakers and some very senior academics. Unfortunately, not all of them were able to contribute to the book, but but the majority uh, were able to contribute. And that's really what why we wanted to try and make a bit of a, a, a statement with the book to get people like like Professor Till and Professor Lambert and also some of the leading um, others like Mike Kaufman, Mike Peterson. Um, we also built in some, some policy. Policymakers, so people who've commanded ships and commanded uh, other other um, naval uh, naval units as well. So, so it's it, it's an interesting balance from my point of view trying to edit it between academic research and public policy.
2: Yeah, no, it's really important, especially even with the
1: growing need for
2: interdisciplinary studies now growing in academia in general. Now, you mentioned a, an interesting point, and that'll be part of my next question. Is Russia has always been traditionally seen as a land power. That's where its main focus is. But yet, what role has navy or sea power played in Russian history? Because Russia is the biggest country in the world, and it has navies that can go on both the Atlantic, the Baltic, the Black Sea, the um, potentially the Mediterranean if the Turks allow them, and then also the Pacific. So... What role has navy power played in Russian history? It,
1: this is, I think, this is the root of of where we can interpret continuity and change and state power as well. The role of state power and priorities, because it, it, you're right, there's it, a very ambiguous point here. At the one, one part, Russia is a continental power. Um, the Russian leadership itself, often the military, often the army, ground forces obviously often talk about Russia as a, as a ground and land-based power. And we've seen Russia in those terms as well. Uh, at the same time, economically, Russia has for, for, for extended periods in its history been almost entirely reliant or, or largely reliant on sea exports, and it's been militarily very vulnerable to sea power. Indeed, the wars that it's it's won, of course, have been against Napoleon and the big fatherland wars, Napoleon again, and 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 Nazi Germany. But the war it has lost, the wars it has lost, have been against sea powers, and uh, for instance, the Crimean War, for instance, the Russo-Japanese War, um, and in many ways, the the primary contestant against the Russian state over the last 150, 200 years has been a maritime or sea power first the british empire and then and then of course the united states and so so you see this constant ambiguity in russian history where yes it's a it's a land power and it prioritizes in many ways ground forces at the same time uh, you see this um quite extended periods where in which naval power and more importantly maritime power have been high high priorities in in russian thinking now, I mean, again, in fact, we can see this trajectory over the last fifty or so years because what we're talking about is at the end of the sea, at the end of the Soviet era, you had a a major uh, major Soviet Navy, ocean-going Navy that in many ways challenged challenged the US, um, and then with the, the 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 dissolution of the Soviet Union, that 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 Navy falling into into disrepair and and, um, and indeed a very serious poor condition. Uh, so during the 1990s and the 2000s, but then from really the early 2010s, I suppose you're talking about a substantial investment um, in in Russian maritime and particularly naval power from the 2010 onwards as part of a wider international trend. So so Russia is like like in many ways the rest of the world investing in maritime power so that 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 50 years is a good indication of the the fluctuations and ambiguity of 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 maritime power for russia and i just i find it very interesting to note this ambiguity again when Gerasimov uh, spoke to the defense attachés last december so you have a russian cavalry officer a russian tanker who's chief of general staff emphasizing three major maritime challenges to Russia in the Northern Sea route, uh, the development of AUKUS, the the, the deal between the U- United States, UK and US for, for nuclear submarines, and challenges around Taiwan. So so even a Russian ground forces officer as chief of the general staff also points to these these maritime challenges that are, and secu- sea power challenges uh, that Russia faces. So
2: how does uh, the current Russian leadership, not just Putin, but also Gerasimov and the other military leaders, how do they interpret Russia's place as a naval power in the 21st century? What's like their viewpoint on this issue?
1: This is, this is one of those, those questions where we have to, to draw a little line uh, and, and be explicit about what's in the planning. And some of the some of the the questions they've had uh, and difficulties they've had implementing this, because because in many ways that the Russian leadership is is explicit both in statements and, and and strategic planning documents and so on that the intent is to make Russia one of the leading seafaring powers in the world. Now, there are various ways of, of, of defining this, but one of the things you and I will probably discuss uh, for the rest of our conversations is this little balance between naval power and maritime power. So we ought to be seeing these two together. The question of Russia's naval ability, but also the fact that that large parts of the Russian economy depend now on the sea. So, so as we'll come to probably a bit later, um, we see plans for substantial investment. Uh, while there are also some some significant doubts and shortfalls, ongoing debates about what maritime and naval power should look like, but nevertheless a sustained and major effort to modernise both naval and civilian sea power, and um, that's largely because the Russian leadership sees a geo-economic competition underway. Now, this was something that you and I spoke about, I think, at length in our last discussion. But this geo-economic competition, Moscow concluded this, came to this conclusion about a decade ago, a bit more now, probably 15 years ago, perhaps we can say, where there would be competition over access to commodities, over transit routes, over access to markets. Uh, And this, in many ways, really... Obliges Moscow to have a global horizon, to be looking at maritime choke uh, choke um, choke points, naval and, and maritime access to 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 the sea, so to speak, um, and the role of access to markets across and through different seas. Um, so, so I think it's become much more important to Russia uh, over the last decade, and the war that 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 we see underway in, uh, against and in Ukraine uh, is is part of that. In many ways, we can see it as, as a maritime conflict. Um, the navy, of course, has played an important role in supporting the effort, but also we look at the exports down through the Sea of Azov and the Black Sea and into the Eastern Mediterranean to to access new markets. So high priority from my point of view, um, explicitly stated in, in in not just in the naval parades, but also in the uh, in the strategic planning documents and in the resourcing that's dedicated to it.
2: Now, we touched on this uh, or just a few minutes ago, kind of like the history of Russia being defeated by maritime naval powers. How important is like Russian maritime naval history? Uh, how important is that to the Russian leadership? Uh, understanding of you know naval maritime power and Russia's uh, status as such like a maritime and naval power how important is history in forging like this justification for their uh, their new policy
1: i i think it's it's very important not 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 purely because of the 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 symbolism that they use—I mean, some of the aspects, for instance, maritime power that, that the Russians use for for, for their presence—they talk, they refer to new new uh, new finds, hydrocarbon finds in the high north. For instance, they refer to this as they've named them after Marshal Zhukov and Rokossovsky. You know, sort of strategic reserves in in Russians maritime literal shores in the in the north. So history, there's there's a there's a reference to it. But from my point, I, I think that the really, the really important and valuable part here is how the Russian leadership uses applied history. So we're looking here about taking the Navy aspects, for instance, to look into how the Russian Navy uses the lessons and the experience of the past to shape an interpretation of, of, of sea power and how you go about achieving it. So history features in two ways. One in the, one in the kind of the prestige way or the, the the big symbolism of of what's going on, but I think more practically and more importantly, you have this this sense of looking through the application of sea power to determine Russian uh, what concepts are relevant for Russia now, how to deal with various threats, and that is important. History is undoubtedly important here. And whenever you talk about the Russian military, you do have to talk about history to interpret the present and the future. What I would say, though, is that really we're looking at, at not so much a, a reliance on history, but as a sea power and, and, and maritime or maritime power as a whole is a present and a future-oriented project and problem for the Russian leadership. So we see the symbolism of it. We see some of the lessons being learned through applied history, but really this isn't a historical this isn't a historical image. We should be thinking. We should be thinking now and through the end of this decade, even into the next decade.
2: Now, of course, when dealing with the Russian military and the Russian leadership, often a a common issue is is that the Russian understanding of certain aspects of military, geopolitical, and naval maritime power are often quite different from that which most Westerners would be uh, familiar with. So how does the Russian understanding of naval and maritime power contrast with, say, Western concepts, more specifically like American and British Concepts.
1: Uh. Well, there there are a couple of good ways of, of, of illustrating this because in in many ways some of the root discussions are quite similar. You know, if we look through Russian history, we find there's quite a lot of interaction between between the Russians uh, and the Royal Navy, um, and and a bit and obviously a lot of of examination um, of how uh, the United States has thought about sea power through Mahan and and, and so on but i think we can draw three points of reference here which which make it different we look at the russians over the last over the last decade as i mentioned uh, in terms of a fourth battle of the atlantic that the russians are building submarines and are going to use them in the same way that that the germans used them in the first two wars uh, to try and cut our sea lanes of communication now, this is quite interesting because this is an echo from the Cold War era. Uh, there's some discussions with CNA and, and the others as well, how there was a policy view that the Russians would use their submarines as, in wolf packs to to cut the convoys. And an analytical line said so that's not what the Russians are busy building or, or exercising for. So we look at a fourth battle of the Atlantic while the Russians have their own interests in, in, in mind, i.e. defending their strategic submarines, um, defending their own their own shoreline and so forth. So so there's a sort of what I suppose you could call a mirror imaging problem here is the first thing that we have to be explicit about. Um, but, but no doubt there are important category differences also. For instance, there's no such thing in, uh, in Russian thought as a naval strategy. So while in the U.S. and um, to a degree I think in the U.K. you would have the development of a naval strategy, that's not so in in Russia, where the navy, when it comes to warfighting, has has uh, a role to play in the greater uh, the greater overall strategic effort. So so there are category differences how we would interpret naval strategy, but there are also frames of how of reference about what command of the sea does. So the the. Command of the Sea, Gospodstvo in, in Russian, um, is viewed entirely differently in in, in many ways. Uh, not just now, but in the past, and it's gone through fluctuations, of course. But this is not seen to be the purpose of the navy. The navy, in many ways, is 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 viewed as being at a disadvantage against a superior enemy almost immediately as soon as this as war breaks out um but command of the sea has to be fought over through combined arms and is is temporary and localized so we here again we use maybe the same the same images or the same conceptual terms but we mean different things so you're absolutely right important questions we have to break through break through some mirror imaging here to work out what it is and and uh, Try to interpret Russian terms as they would be interpreted in Russian strategy. So no A 2 A D, um, because there are not enough uh, American servicemen working for, for for the Russians to to man the systems and so on. So different concepts for different capabilities. Um, that's where these understandings of naval power again come into it. And I'll I'll keep I'll keep whacking this nail, particularly that we tend to talk about naval power. It's really important, I think, that we focus on maritime power, so Russian maritime power as a whole. And this, again, is one of the ways we've not looked at it, I think, in the in the right way. We do discuss this a fair amount in the book, um, but we will tend to focus on Russian naval power, where Moscow will talk much more in terms of of sea power.
2: Now, how concerned should NATO countries... Uh, about russia naval or maritime power as you just uh, explained well
1: I, i think we should well concern is an interesting word because it gives us all sorts of scope for for discussing this uh so i'll i'll take your 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 invitation there thank you stephen it's i think we underestimate the importance of sea power to russia um i think we we think of russian power as quite local or regional um, whereas actually this this sense of 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 sea power has a much more global horizon. When we look at sea power, we're thinking about the shift of the Russian economy, we're thinking about uh the importance of icebreakers, we're thinking about the importance of of oil or hydrocarbon transport. Um and, and I think we should be very aware of how the shipping aspect of this has evolved. Now, when I talk to people in the Royal Navy and the US Navy and, and, and NATO, I don't get the impression that they underestimate Russian naval power at all. They're well aware of, the, of of submarine Russian submarine capabilities. They're well aware that Russia has a large surface fleet and a capable surface fleet, um, much of which is not involved in the war against Ukraine. So, so I think that in some senses, some of the right people don't underestimate this. But more broadly, I, I think we tend to focus perhaps in a media or political way on on the Kursk, for instance, the tragedy, of the sinking of the Kursk and with the loss of the, of the whole crew back in the late 1990s, but also we look at the Kuznetsov, you know, the the fairly elderly uh, aircraft-carrying heavy cruiser, um, and, and we look at the loss of the Moskva, and we, we can more or less talk about Russian naval power in, in a one-dimensional way like that. Um, it's certainly true that there's an obsolescence to parts of the Russian fleet, Uh, And there's a there's a division of of funds across four fleets, uh, four and a half fleets, including the Caspian flotilla, which impacts on on modernization processes and so on. And of course, there is indecision and debate which which drives plans backwards and forwards. So you see incompletion in certain aspects. But 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 in many ways, uh, these questions of obsolescence and, and division of funds are a little bit misleading. Because the Russian Navy has a um, significant capability. the maritime ability of Russia is is what we should be looking at more broadly. and and that's a that's a strategic question that we we really mustn't underestimate. That should be a concern because that's how Russia has sought to sustain its economy, build defence engagement, reach out across the world. I mean, we're talking really about going down to Antarctica. We're talking about building exercises with China. We're talking about um, shaping the northern sea route as an internal waterway. So this is the sort of thing that should concern us.
2: Uh, I really like the point you made, how there's the, the division between say the defense analysts and military members who who uh, focus on russia but then from the political and the media aspect russia's almost like this irrelevant power or they can't do anything i have noticed this very much so in this division of analysis of the war in ukraine where the media and the political establishment is almost like oh the russians they can't do anything right whereas the the military analysts uh, that i've been paying attention to they're saying well no but of course ukraine and russia they're not fighting the way that we would fight so trying to interpret it through that lens is not correct it's just they're fighting the war uh their way and what works best for them under their circumstances and i think this gets back to the mirror image that you mentioned before where somehow If a military or, in this case, maritime naval power doesn't do things our way, then somehow they're incompetent, not fully capable, and it's uh, well that creates a bit of a blind potential blind spot where you can, you know, be caught off guard.
1: Yeah, I I think this is this is right, and we have. um, I mean, there there are a range of other sort of let's let's call them strategic questions when we look at the Russian Navy. Now, look, it's certainly possible to say, and, and some of the chapters deal with this in, in the book, that the, the Russian Navy, as I mentioned, has some some obsolete aspects to it, and, and there are certain flaws and so on, and they approach things differently to us. It's much more a question of of mass and firepower, for instance. But, but the Russian Navy, for instance, I think one of the things we should be looking for uh, and watching out for is is the use of the navy to st- because they have large numbers of ships is to stretch attention and stretch and, and deploy in different ways and put pressure on on the smaller and more exquisite technology, exquisitely technological aspects of of Western navies, which are smaller in scale, apart from of course the U.S. to a degree. So it then becomes a question of defense engagement and deployment and deterrence rather than combat. And if we end up asserting freedom of operations and that kind of thing, we may find ourselves in in, in interesting uh, statecraft waters with the Russians. So it's not purely about combat. It's not purely about the, the the firepower aspect of this. But yes, when you look at perhaps some of our naval approaches and our warfighting approaches, a question of, of exquisite technology and precision, and, and whereas the Russians much more look at, at mass and firepower. And that, that that will continue, I think, over the, over the foreseeable future.
2: Now, we were talking about how NATO or many analysts kept thinking about the Russian Navy trying to pull off like another battle of the Atlantic, kind of similar to what Germany tried to do in the two world wars. But uh, what are the actual four principal missions of the Russian Navy that are? Uh, mentioned in the book.
1: Well, I think this is this is a, a, a very interesting challenge for, for for us to interpret because the missions are set out. Um there is a question of evolution in our minds generally speaking. We think of Russia as a, as a as a dare I say almost as a coastal defense force. And that's understandable because coastal defense and naval aviation and so on have an important role to play um in Russian thinking. And um, but what what we tend to see also alongside the aspects I've just mentioned of deployability and range across the the world and defence defence engagement, there are a number of of, of of shifts in Russian thinking that we get to in the book, and we talk about an increasing offensive, an increasingly offensive role for the navy. So we're not just talking about shore defence in, in sort of sporting terms. You might call this the jab to sort of to, to set up distance. Um, you're also talking about a promotion of to, to a high priority of the, the intent to destroy enemy land based facilities at long range. So while we might think of the the climactic battle at sea, um, with 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 vessels shooting at each other and trying to knock each other out, actually the Russian Navy really tends to support um, a long range strike capability against land based facilities. So command facilities, command posts, major economic positions, political uh, policy making nodes. Um, that's the first one. Then the second is to ensure the sustainability of Russia's ballistic missile submarines. So strategic deterrence. This is the this is probably the the one we might come back to every so often. Uh, a third, of course, is to destroy enemy uh, related to to that destroy enemy anti submarine warfare capabilities and other forces. Yes, coastal facilities, um, and then we're looking at, at combat support for the for the for the out for the, the ground forces. So the deployment of firepower on shore. So in many ways, it's a it's a bit of a I mentioned how we use or the Russian Navy uh, does, and we should use. Uh, history, applied history, to learn how they evolve. In many ways, you could talk about a a neo-Gorshkovian or an echo of Gorshkov's idea of the fleet against the shore. That's probably how we should think about it best. Fleet against the shore with conventional and strategic deterrence.
2: So more fleet uh, against the shore rather than fleet against fleet, which would be more of the traditional uh, British-American approach.
1: Yes, that's what I, I think. So that's what we should be looking for. I mean, the fleet against the fleet bit. I that there are questions about the technological capabilities. There's questions about uh, about how that is implemented. So I would see the fleet against fleet bit as an activity rotor in many ways. The deployment of ships in order to keep our ships busy and expensive, um, and to put our navies under an activity pressure in many ways. But the warfare, the war fighting role is really fleet against shore.
2: Now, you talked about applied history, and we have talked about history before in this uh, discussion, but uh, the Russian Navy and even the Russian military as a whole, they often have to draw on two areas of traditions, both the old Tsarist, but also the Soviet tradition. And one of the uh, interesting aspects, because getting back to the political and naval aspect, people still seem to think that the Soviet Union is still around. I think one a state department official even uh, incorrectly said, "Well, the Soviet Union is invading Ukraine," and that looked a little embarrassing for the uh, for the uh, American administration at the time. But yeah, what does the Russian Navy owe in many ways to both the Czarist and the Soviet legacy? The contemporary Russian Navy,
1: the contemporary Russian Navy, to to my mind, owes uh, well. Most of it comes from any roots. It has come from the Soviet era. Okay, yes, there are traditions, and you know you have important, important symbolic roles of, of admirals like Ushakov and so on. But really, you're looking at a at quite a significant break. Um, at the end of the Tsarist era, for instance, with the the, the loss of the, the Russo-Japanese fleet uh, in the in the Russo-Japanese War, and the inability really to build itself back up before World War One, and then the Revolution. I mean, now we can talk a bit about Russian naval tra- imperial Russian naval traditions, but but to my mind, it's more valuable, I think, to talk from the early Soviet era. Because that's where you have really the emphasis on submarines. That's where you have the emphasis on on um, also uh, the, the 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 role that the, the navy plays within broader strategic thinking. Um, and then, of course, we're coming through to the the the, the period of uh, Admiral Gorshkov, the primarily into the the 70s and the early 80s, where he built this 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 uh, navy with a global horizon. So so that's where the link we have a link back to the early Soviet era, which is the primacy in many ways of submarines uh, in in Russian thought and submarine uh, subsurface expertise. But also the late Soviet echo in terms of Gorshkov's approach to try to have a global horizon in terms of understanding of of the nature of dealing with security threats, but also um, diplomatic engagement and and so on. So so for me, we're looking at those two those two areas of the Soviet period, and then we're now they're, if they're the roots, we see the branches now emerging really of of, of an independent Russian tradition, which is um, which is certainly being debated about kind of the kind of navy that they need uh, but also is taking shape much more for a a hydro, a sea based hydrocarbon economy for the next for the foreseeable future
2: now what do we know about we have discussed a little bit about this but what do we know about possible strat, uh, naval strategies against nato in the case of a potential war and we just got through like how they would try to use their numbers to try to divert uh nato's attention and also in terms of actual military action more uh fleet against the shore is there anything else you want to add onto that uh issue onto that uh, question
1: i think the the only thing i would probably underline here is is the use of um the Navy's role as part of the strategic deterrent. So if we think about, let's call it um, deployment engagement and defense engagement further afield uh, and then the fleet against shore, we're part of that that triad would be adding the strategic deterrence aspect to it. i I think we have to consider that as as part of their 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 um their strategic approach to us
2: Now, speaking of strategic deterrence, uh, a major aspect of Russian military thinking against NATO is also using nuclear deterrence. What That's role it. does what role does that have in terms of the navy and maritime
1: power? I think it's a it's again this is a, this is that point where I'm talking about that that triad between um, defense deployment and engagement, uh, fleet against shore and nuclear uh, and the nuclear deterrence aspect because in many ways while we've seen the the modernization of russian armed forces over the last decade the investment and so on and that, that that's um that, that prepared them for to a degree uh ukraine and then has been found um to 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 require more so to speak one of the things that's been a pro- constant priority is the modernization of the, the the nuclear deterrent and the Navy of course has been part of that. So right at the very right at the very top we must always be talking in many ways about the Navy's role in in, in strategic deterrence. I mean as I as I'm emphasizing, you know there are multiple parts to this we must we must really be looking in general terms at maritime, And within that, the Navy has a role, but overarching this when it comes to security is that question of the the, the strategic deterrent in uh, launch from submarines.
2: Now, you did talk about how part of this is that Russia is economically uh, not dependent, but it's uh, a major part of its economy now is based off of maritime trade. And one that we discussed in our last discussion and has also become part of much of the in uh, world news is the importance of grain exports from Russia. So how does this play and how does this connect with Russian maritime strategy and
1: naval power? Well, there's there's a duality to it. Well, just a quick point about about before I come to grain, please, let's keep in mind the oil and gas. Being, being transported by sea as well. I mean, the building of, of oil tankers, the building of of LNG term infrastructure and so on. So indeed, a lot. Of, the war has accelerated Russia's dependence on the sea. In fact, it was while the book was in publication process, you know, we were watching this, thinking how how actually in many ways the war doesn't undermine this; it accelerates the purpose. So while you have a strategic, a political and economic pivot to Asia. Uh, what you find and i say asia in because russia still calls it the asia pacific region to that we should be adding not just the the, the, the question of of um hydrocarbons to 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 india for instance or or um or, or or supply chains with with china but we're also looking at the middle east and north africa and and so so russia's engagement with with uh with these regions is primarily taking shape by by sea now and that's the same for grain as it is for, uh, for for hydrocarbons.
2: Now, also one area Russia is trying to expand its uh, maritime uh, power is in the Northern Sea Route, and that's in the Arctic Ocean, correct?
1: Uh, well, the Russians treat this as as part of uh, their internal waterway, so there is there's some discussion about how far uh, the littoral goes, as you'll as you'll know, and then whether the Northern Sea Route is part of the global commons and and so on. So, so yes, uh, uh, Russia is very clear that the Northern Sea Route is the Russian leadership is very clear that the Northern Sea Route is an internal Russian waterway, uh, uh, and you're right. I mean, there's there's a uh, uh, there's an extended discussion to be had on this. Uh, you'll you'll remember we we touched on this a bit in our our earlier conversation. I think um, the Northern Sea Route is 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 essentially Moscow sees it as its future and is investing heavily in it. So while they're waging their their, their campaign against Ukraine, at the same time last year they were shaping a strategy for the development of the Northern Sea Route to 2035 and resourcing it and launching a nuclear icebreaker and and, and so on. So the effort that goes into the northern sea route is, is strategic. And in many ways, it, it's it's, a, it's their priority for the future. It's that not only is the region and the hydrocarbons and so on, the strategic reserves, as I mentioned, the, the Zhukov and Rokosovsky fields. This is also a means of driving uh, driving the economy. Uh, of building towards uh, building the economy as a whole, uh, but also connecting Russia to the the rest of the world, not just east-west, of course, but north-south as well. So what we're talking about here is infrastructure linking uh, the high north with Iran and with the Caspian Sea and uh, effectively taking it down to the Indian Ocean. So the northern sea route plays and, and, and development of the high north plays a very very significant role in russian russian strategic uh, thinking and action um, it, in many ways uh, moscow is relying quite heavily on this uh, and that of course is not to underestimate the scale of the problem that the russians have you know in many ways the, the infrastructure there is limited is decrepit uh, it will require vast investments to 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 make it function, but it's exactly what we see Moscow trying to implement, and, and therefore the navy plays an important role in this, uh, protecting the protecting the new sites, protecting the port infrastructure, uh, protecting the trading the trade route, and, and so on. So so the, these parts again, it, in many ways, it's, there's a dual purpose aspect to this of maritime power and naval power coming to the the defence of economic interests.
2: Yes, I just very recently. Uh, even read about how China is trying to invest in this as well. And it just made me immediately think of what, what I was just reading in the book and what we were going to be discussing in this interview.
1: Yeah. I mean, this is this is something that I think has been underway for for some time. You know, there were there were discussions. Medvedev had discussions with that with the Chinese about securing investment in the north and so on. I know people often ask, won't there be competition between the Russians and the Chinese in the high north? Uh, and the answer to that, to a degree, is 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 yes and no. I mean, it's one of those unfortunate ambiguous answers that people don't find very satisfactory. That There's Chinese investment, but uh, Moscow has sought Chinese investment. But at the same time, very much protects its interests, and you know you might have seen some of the legislation that the very the constant tightening of legislation that Moscow has put in for um, for accessing that 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 Northern Sea Route.
2: Yes, and it kind of comes up to a, a presumption. I I constantly see in the media and a lot of the political analysis that somehow there's going to be a repeat of the Sino-Soviet split. But yet, I've also noticed that a lot of experts, most notably uh, Sergei Rochenko, who's a historian of the Soviet period, he kind of notes that, you no, know, both Russia and China, they both kind of saw how that affected them, and they're actually trying to avoid, you know, something akin to the Sino-Soviet split, because then that just diverted to attention from the Soviet, of the Soviet Union, and then And so forth so it's not quite the same thing and also there's no there's none of the ideological aspect of well who's who's more communist who's the better marxist this time it's actually no we have common interests so you know yeah they may clash but we'll try to smooth those differences out as much as possible
1: i this is i I think this is one of those those very interesting questions which we can we can address from a number of different angles i mean watching the watching the growth of of over the last 15 20 years um of of economic ties between russia and china and technological development ties and and various others there's no question that there are slight differences in emphasis between between the two leaderships of course there are but uh in many ways when i hear people talk about a sino-soviet or you know split as as coming forth today as well what i what i hear is wishful thinking that the problem just goes away of its own accord um and and that i i must say i'm i I don't think is a sound basis for assessing our strategic the strategic challenges that face us over the next few years um in many ways actually what we see with what we came up with what we found during the during research and preparation of the book was that the planning emphasis not only draws Russia into this this relationship more more deeply, but also takes Russia. It, it gives you a horizon into into how Russia interprets the next this the rest of this century as being a the twenty first century is is a Pacific century. Um, and, and two of the main strategic problems that they mentioned, I, I mentioned Gerasimov earlier. Uh, one is over the, the the deal for nuclear submarines with Australia, AUKUS, and the other is the the US pressure on China and Taiwan. I find this this very interesting to see how Moscow interprets these questions and some of that's in the book.
2: Yeah, a related question and uh if you'd like to comment on this, I often also see this one thing where Russia will somehow be like a puppet of China, kind of like how China in the early period was interpreted as a puppet of the Soviet Union but from what I've I've heard and read from experts in the field it's just no cuz China realizes that's what what caused the Sino-Soviet split so if they treat the Russians the same way that's going to cause a split and that's going to make them have to fight both the Russians and the Americans at the same time so it just seems like it's just we can't get out of the cold war paradigm and also just wishful thinking as you just mentioned
1: yeah i I think there's um those two points that you mentioned Stephen, are very very important to this that that we tend to see russia in a cold war aspect uh, and we we tend to see it just going away of its own its own accord and this this part of of or russia will just become a um a a junior partner of, of china um when I look at Russian futures and foresight thinking, which is a little bit of what the book does, but is part of a new new project, it's it's very interesting to see how their two the two of their main foresight uh, scenarios are either a unipolar world dominated by the U.S. and force, which in many ways keeps the Chinese and the Russians uh, on, on a similar on a similar path, or a or a more bipolar world divided between the U.S. and China. So. You know, and when we've you know, there's a lot to be said about the Russo-Chinese relationship, um, which is a little bit off off our subject. But but when you when you see this this foresight, you you can interpret how Russia sees the shifting pan the shifting structure of the international architecture. And where it tends to, where the leadership tends to view its, you know, the the the, uh, the overall trajectory, and and I think this is one of the one of the one of the reasons why well, it is one of the reasons why we focused on this book is because the the world is becoming more and more maritime dominated, and the 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 you know the the lines that come through are that more trade goes by sea, more uh, more and more of the world's population is is on the shoreline or affected by the sea and and in many ways that's that's where we that's where we see um you know a, a russo chinese relationship being built also in in maritime aspects
2: yes and part of this maritime aspect of the world russia is actually trying to get into the civilian shipbuilding business so it's not just purely naval military power it's also civilian uh, maritime uh, absolutely abilities uh, could you possibly talk about that
1: Absolutely, uh, this is this is very much uh, uh, an important question for, for for our thinking about the strategic shift in in Moscow's thinking about about moving away from being perhaps a, a land power purely, and over time moving towards becoming this seafaring nation. Uh, you'll note I don't use the terms sea power or one word or sea power two words, which we would often use to to describe a land power that uses its navy, a seafaring nation that uh that that depends in many ways on its ability to build not just warships but but also a civilian um uh a civilian capability and putin is is quite explicit as are the strategic planning documents of development of marine resources science and and, and science and geographical research hydrography um fishing and resources uh, as well as the hydrocarbons of course that we mentioned so so it's 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 research. It's uh, it's resources focused. It's um, it's this this kind of capability is 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 the sort of thing that we we should be looking at, not just submarines, but also uh, Russia's icebreaker capability, uh, the Russia Russia's ability to build tankers and to build port infrastructure. These are these are the strategic questions. Of course, the the submarines and, and the nuclear deterrent is a strategic question, but Russia's ability to build its civilian uh, civilian marine capability is 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 I think one that is really often overlooked.
2: Now we did touch on Asia a bit, and we did talk a lot about China. Uh, how does how does Asia, the rest of Asia like particularly like India? Because India is another major, mm-hmm. uh, 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 not necessarily ally, but a another asian power that has a rising asian power that has actually had close relationships with uh with russia and even earlier with the soviet union in fact uh, i often have to explain to people when the sino-soviet split happened one of the main beneficiaries of it was india because the soviet union improved relationship like increased relationships with the uh with india so how does like this play into and of course india has also been uh, uh increasing trade with uh, uh russia since uh the start of the ukraine war and sanctions play western sanctions were placed on russia so how does like india and some other areas of asia figure in russia's maritime strategy
1: so this is, this is an excellent question. Thank you. It's a, it's because two, two things immediately come from it. First of all, when we talk about the war in Ukraine, the implications of, of, of Moscow's war against Ukraine, there are, uh, two things to bear in mind. First, of course, this didn't begin in 2022, um, we can debate when when it started, but really we're looking at 2014, and that's when we saw the beginning of sanctions. Really, the more important sanctions, which which obliged a Russian diversification uh, of, of of various parts of its economy. So. In the second half of the 2010s, we already see Moscow doing deals and port infrastructure deals, and and so on, reaching out into the Indian Ocean. I I think that one of the big, the big foresight aspects of of, of what we're looking at here is, is is the growth in in Russian interest in the Indian Ocean. We focus for obvious reasons on the Mediterranean, on the Black Sea, on the the Northern Sea Route, but I, but I think we ought to be looking at at the northern at the Indian Ocean, uh, indeed the russian navy and and the the head of the russian navy's just been to uh myanmar and and the russian navy's just been having uh, exercises in bangladesh so so we see this this interest not just india but also areas where you have growing markets and again i bring it back to that discussion we had previously about that that uh the other book of, of russian grand strategy and near of of, of great power competition or global power competition the growth of russian economic interests in the indian ocean is something that we're seeing tied now with also with uh with maritime interests and naval interests so we're looking at at, at a variety of things really a trajectory that began before the war in ukraine in terms of diversification of the the economy, a an acceleration of that since 2014, and then a further acceleration since 2022. Whether we're talking India, Bangladesh, um, whether we're talking uh, also, um, actually further afield in in the Indian Ocean. So this, in my mind, is part of the, the the discussion that we we haven't looked at in the in our debate about Russian power, and that's one of the things we try and advocate for where we should, the questions we should look for in the future.
2: Now, what is kind of the future trajectory of Russian uh, maritime power based on the available evidence? And of course, nobody can predict the future uh, 100%, but what does the trajectory seem to indicate based on the evidence available to us?
1: If we take this again in that slight site, site duality, the first of, of of strategy and power and the purpose behind these, these books is is to look at at russia's assumptions about the future the russian leadership's assumptions about the future how it then plans for those you know builds plans on those assumptions and then shapes through in in implementation and of course all three aspects of this are are very difficult as you said there's it's difficult to difficult to make predictions especially about the future is the, the 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 often quoted line um so of course, you're looking at what Clausewitz would have called the fog and friction, the fog of peering into the future and not being able to see very far, but also the friction of future events. But let's let's take it with, with Moscow's intent to begin with. It's a very clear and consistent and persistent prioritization of developing an economic um, and a maritime capability to sustain the economy. So the uh, investment in both the Navy and in the civilian capabilities. And what we're talking about is not just building ships, which that means investing all the way deep into modernizing and building new shipbuilding infrastructure, modernizing shipyards, export infrastructure for hydrocarbons and commodities. So all the way, all the way through really from, from building ships and missiles to, to building export infrastructure. This is, this is a, this is clearly a priority there's there's no change at all visible in in the russian leadership as i mentioned last year uh they're emphasizing uh and they developed and an, the northern sea route development strategy to 2035 the maritime there's a recent maritime uh, doctrine emphasizing again towards through the end of the doc, this decade into the next um so we're looking at, at A persistent prioritization and the resources that have been dedicated to that over the last decade are reaping resources. So we should expect to see a growth in Russian civil and and, and naval power. We should expect to see a growth in capability to export by the sea. Um, We should expect because of the war, uh, the Navy to be obliged to take a larger role. Um, while the ground forces are being rebuilt and reorganized, um but also because the, the the economic roles, the economic aspects demand the Navy out are out protecting Russian naval interests as well. So I think you'll see the Navy going further afield, not to be established a permanent presence across the globe, but to to make their presence felt across the globe. so defense engagement and diplomacy, as I said, um and and this accelerated net maritime emphasis. Now, will there be will there be debates about the impact of the war on the Navy? Un- undoubtedly, Stephen. yes, of course, because there's a permanent debate about it. In fact, the, the events of the war are only going to 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 emphasize that debate. Do they need to modernize some of the old big ships like along like like the musk Fire, which lots of money was spent on and. You know, the Nakhimov, for instance, will, will the investment go into that, or will it go into a different kind of ship? Will there be a value for aircraft carriers or not? These debates will rock backwards and forwards. Um, but I think we have a we have a view for the for the next uh, short to medium term of of a growth in Russian uh, use of the sea for state power.
2: This has been a very uh, very fascinating and enlightening uh, discussion. Do you have any uh, final thoughts? Uh, Maybe cover on anything we didn't touch on in
1: the book. Well, uh, we've we've had a very wide-ranging conversation. Thank you uh, for having me again. I mean, I, I suppose I would maybe conclude like this: that that our thinking about Russian Russian power needs to undergo a fundamental change. That's not to say that Russia is becoming in you know, 2024 a sea power in the way that we would think of it. Speaking as a, as a Brit that thinks of, of of maritime power as integral to our, our culture and our democracy and, and so on and so forth. But 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 we need to think about ways of how Russian power is evolving as a result of the war, A, but also as a result of longer-term state effort. And I think this is going to require new some new vocabulary. Um, and I think we should be thinking about Russia as a polar power, for instance, not just the high north and the Arctic, of course, but as in Russian involvement in Antarctica. This is a north-south question as well as east-west. And I think we should be looking to interpret Russian competition in the global commons. These are these are the, probably the primary questions about how Russia is shaping its interests as a with Moscow is shaping Russian interests as a global as a global player. Um, it, it will it will affect everything we have to do with Russia, whether it's defence, whether it's deterrence, or n- not immediately likely for the time being, but but whether it's dialogue, um, and and trying to think about Russia in terms of well, okay, yes, considerable Russian power at land, um, in terms of rebuilding ground forces and effort to ground forces, but but that that role of other aspects of Russian Russian power, including maritime. Uh, I think build a more three dimensional and more forward looking aspect of of understanding Russian power. Not and in order to be clear, not only its strengths but also its weaknesses and that the how we shape and how Moscow tries to deal with those strengths and weaknesses and and implement a strategy.
2: Yes, uh, even being a global power uh, or player, as you said, I was even just recently reading about how in some ways French influence in Africa has just kind of evaporated and now Russia is kind of moved in now that doesn't mean like they're puppets of moscow like say during like the cold war era but no it means their presence is being felt now like in i believe it was in sudan mali and a few other african countries that Unfortunately, I can't remember off the top of my head for, forgive me, it's been a long week.
1: (laughs) But we can, but we can, I mean, you're absolutely right. And we can look to the, the growing Russian relationship with Iran. We look to the growing, growing Russian relationship with, with the Gulf, um, you no, know, there's so much rolls out of where we're going. So many, so many important changes and evolutions. Let's call them. Um, when, when we're looking at interpreting the nature of power, the implications this has for trade routes, this, the implications it has for um, for freedom of navigation, as I mentioned earlier, the implications it has for uh, search and rescue, for instance. Um, so it opens up so many sort of detailed questions. But the overarching one is of 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 um of strategic shift in in international affairs that Moscow is trying to drive, and we ought to be looking at Russia's role alongside in in yes, as you say in in. Um, Well, not only in North Africa, but but in sub-Saharan Africa, but in organizations like OPEC plus too, we should be looking at, you know, Russian dynamic, you know, to what extent are they able to coordinate and integrate their, coordinate their activities with OPEC plus um, to drive a Russian agenda, I mean, Uh, the extent to which Russia will seek to become more active in the Pacific as well.
2: Yeah. And then there's also BRICS, which has also been getting some attention in, a lot of the political and media analysts. uh, Do you have any thoughts on on how that will affect uh, Russian influence?
1: Uh, Well, I, I would say it's that, that, that constant effort to be reaching out to a global audience. Yes, I mean I I think there are always questions for you know, Russia's role in in reaching out. Again, I mentioned that that sense of strengths and weaknesses. But but frankly, we can we can talk about strengths and weaknesses for the rest of the you know, the rest of the week, Stephen. It's what I want to get at is is intent and strategy and or priorities and resources dedicated to it. And certainly, the Russians are very clear about their interest in BRICS. Yes, um, BRICS and, and and OPEC Plus. I would say. Probably two of the, the 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 most important formats in this sense. It will will they achieve everything they want? No, of course not. Um, but but the agenda is set out, and that's where we need to be. I think aware of of how persistent and consistent Moscow has been in in, in pursuing an agenda that that is that is pretty long long range in terms of time timelines. You now, really, we're looking at at an agenda that comes in many ways that was that was shaped in was shaped in the mid to late 2000s and and my concern primary concern here is that that when you when you listen to to Putin's speeches or or, or those of other senior officials that they think their foresight is being you know their foresight from 2007 2012 2013 2015 is being proven correct that's a, that that should that should i think come as as a concern to people uh, because i think in london post people would say well it's complete failed um, and it just drives us into completely different galaxies, which become uninterpretable to each other. That, that's a positive danger.
2: Yeah, I remember that was also a major point that we made in our last uh, interview about Russian uh, grand strategy as a whole. And uh, yes, we could probably continue this discussion uh, for the rest of the week, as you said, because there's just so much to discuss. Uh, well, uh, we always like to end our uh our uh interviews by asking our guests what are you working on now
1: well i'm working on what, what i suppose in in broader terms is 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 another another angle of, of of interpreting russian strategy and power i'm looking at russian military strategy and how that's evolved and what the key questions are for for interpreting continuity and change in that so so is there is there a russian way in war is what i'm what i'm looking at i mean this was something that i i shaped again a little bit on the back of these these two books as well, um, and another one called Power in Modern Russia, uh, which is really trying to see how we can interpret that continuity and change over the longer term, the preparation for war, the way that Moscow goes to war. And and, and now that, of course, Moscow's launched this assault, renewed assault on, on Ukraine what it means for implications heading out towards the rest of you know the the twenty thirties. So I'm I'm working on on the Russian way in war. There will be a bit of maritime in it. Uh, there will be a bit of grand strategy in it, but it's it's primarily focused on on the military aspects.
2: Well uh, maybe when you get done with that we can have you back on for a third uh, interview.
1: I'd be delighted. Thank you very much.
2: <laughs> uh Andrew Monaghan, uh thank you for joining us on the New Books Network.
1: Thank you for having me, Stephen.
2: Thank you for listening to this episode of the New Books Network. I am your host, Stephen Sakevich. Until next time.